uh, to our study of the word. Uh, we're in the book of James and we've come in our study of James chapter 1 and we're going to be in verses 19 through 20 and we're going to be looking at the topic of how to disagree agreeably. This is one of the most important passages for understanding how to maintain good relationships. It's one of the most important passages for understanding a, a paradigm of biblical communication. I want to begin by seeing whether or not this message is going to be applicable to you by asking uh, you how many of you, uh, by show of hands, have had a disagreement with someone this week? Okay, the rest of you need to get more friends. But uh, so I did that in the first service and I kind of felt bad about it because I'm like preaching on, you know, like the tongue and that's maybe a little sharp. And so, you know, so, but the illustration is to illustrate how much I need uh, what I'm about to preach. I told, uh, I asked Katie to, to tell my kids, uh, kids, dad's going to preach a sermon that is aspirational, not, <laughs> not, uh, not current uh, for him. So, um, but the reality is, is that we all have disagreements and we all struggle uh, with biblical communication. We've we have disagreements with spouses, with children, with parents, with relatives, with coworkers, with friends, with people on social media. And so the reason that I know that today's passage is practical and applicable to you and to everyone in this room is that we do have disagreements and that's unavoidable. There are, just to do a little statistics for you, there's you know, about 7 billion people in the world. Each and every single one of those 7 billion people have opinions on a large variety of topics. Seven billion people with hundreds, if not thousands, of opinions. In that context, in a fallen world, it's impossible that there won't be disagreements. Disagreement is a reality, so we need to learn how to disagree agreeably. How do we disagree in a way that doesn't destroy relationships? Now, we're not supposed to be wallflowers, right, who just wilt and capitulate to the will and whims of others. But we're also not supposed to be hot-headed flamethrowers who immediately torch anyone who dares to disagree with us on the slightest topic. No, there is a, a biblical balance that is supposed to be in the life of the believer. Now, when we talk about this biblical balance, I want to just note that we're going to be talking today about disagreements between people. We're not talking about disagreements between man and God. And I want to just clarify that. When the word of God teaches something about morals or doctrine, the issue is not one of agreement, it's one of obedience. If the difference of opinion is between God and man, we all must submit to him and to the authority of his word. But here's the reality. Most of the interpersonal disagreements that we have, most of the arguments that we have with each other have nothing to do with the things that are clearly and directly taught in God's word. Nothing. It is actually very rare that arguments are over matters of doctrine and morals as they are clearly taught in scripture. If we are honest and if the truth be told, most of the arguments we have that damage relationships are not over biblical doctrine, nor are they over biblical morals. They are over other things. I want to encourage you to think about what you've disagreed with someone on this, you know, over the past couple months, and then look up the topic in a Bible concordance, an exhaustive Bible concordance, so that you don't miss anything. I think you'll be surprised of how little 
the Bible says about the things you've been arguing about. The reality is the Bible simply does not have a lot to say about masks, about vaccines, about energy policy, about football teams, or about where to put your couch. <laughs> or, or any of the other things that people so commonly argue about. We argue about things that are associated with self-interest or with our own opinions or with various things, but they are not things that God has decided are necessary for life and godliness. The scripture, as it says, has revealed us, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So if it's important enough to be a matter of obedience to God, it's something that's written. And so Paul would tell the Corinthians, you need to learn, he says, as we have learned as apostles, not to go beyond what is written. Now, where the Bible speaks clearly, the question, as I said, is not whether or not we agree, but whether or not we will obey. But where the Bible does not speak clearly, we need to learn to disagree agreeably. And this morning's text is going to teach us how to do that. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. This you know, my beloved brethren. I, I love, even when he's going to teach us about how to communicate, he's modeling it. He says, you're my beloved brethren. I'm saying this because I love you. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, it wasn't hard to come up with an outline for this passage because James gives us three instructions, and so they are our outline. He tells us to be quick, to listen, to be slow to speak, and to be slow to anger. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, before we kind of dig into how to apply those principles, I want to just quickly make two exegetical observations. The first observation that I want to make is that when James says we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry... If you're familiar at all with grammar, he could use and actually does use here infinitive, infinitive verbs. Uh, an infinitive verb just means to speak or to listen or to run or to do something. But James doesn't just use the infinitive. He also adds a preposition, the preposition ice. Ice is a preposition which means into. And here's the idea behind this preposition. It is leaving one state or one position and entering into another. And James adds this preposition because he understands that in order for us to, to communicate biblically, we're going to need a change of heart, a change of mind. We have to switch into a different mindset, a different frame, a different attitude. He's saying we should be quick to enter into the state of hearing, slow to enter into the state of speaking, and slow to enter into the state of anger. Put it another way, a little bit in more modern lingo, we need to be quick to enter the listening mode, slow to entering the talking mode, and very slow to enter the emoting mode. So these instructions go much deeper than our behavior. James is addressing our mindset, our heart attitude, the inner state, which is going to determine the outer speech. 
James is not just saying, look, I'm going to teach you some tricks of the trade so that you can bite your tongue long enough for the other person to stop talking until you can set them straight. No, what, he, what he's saying here is he's saying, look, I'm, gonna, I'm exhorting you to quickly enter, leave whatever frame of mind you were in and enter into a new frame of mind and a new attitude of heart where you are genuinely interested and attentive to what the other person is trying to communicate. Where you are leaving the state or the attitude of self-focus and into a focus on others. From a selfish frame of mind to a loving frame of mind. So the vocabulary and grammar here are instructive. This goes a lot deeper than behavior. It goes to the attitudes of our hearts. You do realize, don't you, that you can be exceptionally skilled as a communicator and be very sinful in your communication. In my years uh, ministering in the former Soviet Union, there was twice where I was, uh, you know, once where I was pulled off of a train and then once pulled out of an airplane line and, and uh, inter- interviewed uh, by the Russian FSB. And for whatever reason, these guys had um, driven a couple hours to, you know, pull me off the train and, 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 you know, talk with me. They were excellent communicators. In fact, they were probably the most skilled communicators I've ever interacted with. I mean, they, they were the best of the best in their understanding of the mechanics of communication. But what they were good at on the behavioral level doesn't reflect what was in their hearts. And I knew that. We had a great conversation. They asked me all kinds of questions and tried to you know, trip me up or catch me in, in, in something. And I just shared the gospel with them. I mean, it was an easy conversation. What are you here to do? Share the gospel. What's the gospel? Let me explain it to you. Glad you asked. Um, you know, after about 10 minutes of that, they're like, okay, let's move on to another topic. You know, uh, you know who are you going to visit? I'm like, well, pastors. Well, what are you going to do there? Well, we're going to, and right back into the gospel. <laughs> the point I'm making, though, is that you can be a very skilled communicator and be very sinful in your communication. To really practice biblical communication, you need a transformation of heart, not just of skill. This is not a message about growing in your communication skills. This is not about learning techniques of effective communication. This is about the transformation of the heart. You need to leave a selfish frame and enter into a state of genuine interest in the other person. A state of genuine humility which leads to measured and edifying speech. And genuine self-control which stops anger at its source which is the human heart. So to truly apply these verses you have to leave a sinful heart attitude and a selfish frame of mind and enter into a biblical attitude of heart and a loving frame of mind. And that is something that I know we all struggle to do. Regardless of how many communication courses we've had, regardless of how many books on interpersonal communication we've had, You do realize, don't you, that communication experts, those who teach the classes on it, go home and argue with their wives? So do preachers, so do pastors, so do you. So I know we all need to work on applying these key principles of biblical communication at the heart level, not just at the skill level. It starts at the heart, not at the mouth. I don't just say that we all need this as a pastoral observation. I say it because it's right there in the text, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but every one 
must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We, we all need this. Isaiah, when he sees the Lord, says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. It's a personal and a corporate problem here. So we need this. So let's dig in and look how, at how to apply these three principles of biblical communication. These are three basic and bedrock principles. So let's look a little bit at how to apply them. First, we should be quick to listen. James is saying that everyone needs to be constantly working on being a better listener. And so this is something we all need to do. Well, how do we do it? Well, first I want to suggest to you that becoming a better communicator and a better listener in particular starts with prayer as almost everything, well, in fact, everything in the Christian life does. Psalm 141 verse 3 says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice deeds of wickedness. It starts with prayer. Praying, saying, Lord, help me. Help me to set a guard. Lord, you set a guard over my mouth. Lord, you please watch over the door of my lips and don't let my heart to incline to any evil thing because as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your mouth will speak out of what fills the heart. So changing starts with prayer. But I want to give you three uh, kind of practical ways to become a better listener. Listen first, listen fully, and listen fairly. Listen first. I want you to listen to what Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13 says. I've derived these practical principles mostly from the Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 13. He who gives an answer before he listens, it is folly and shame to him. Right? If you reply before you've listened, that's folly and that is shame. So listen first. Listen first, then respond. Proverbs says it's folly and a shame. It's folly because jumping to conclusions, jumping to premature conclusions in a conversation leads to conversational belly flops. It makes a big splash, but all it does is leave everyone wet and upset and you with a red belly of shame. So listen first. Listen before you answer. Hear it first. You know, the only time where you should give the answer before you hear the question is if you're a contestant on Jeopardy. (laughs) Other than that, you need to hear the question before you give the answer. In other words, listen to to the question, listen to the topic, listen to the concern, listen to the suggestion, listen to the point of view, listen to the proposal, listen to the feelings being expressed. Listen first and then respond. Next, not only listen first, but listen fully. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Now, communication is all one way for him, and that is why he's a fool, because to learn, you must receive information. If you only delight in revealing your own mind, trust me, you're revealing a shallow mind, because a habitual pattern of revealing only your own mind is someone who, as one of my professors says, thinks he has opinions, but only actually has prejudices. Listen fully. One of the most common communication sins, this is one I guarantee will be familiar to you, as it is to me. One of the most common communication sins is to begin thinking about your response before the other person has even finished what they're saying. We all do that. 
But here's the, the problem with that. People usually add nuance or clarifications at the end of what they're trying to say. So if you tune them out halfway through, you'll miss what they really said. You only heard half. You didn't hear the nuance. You didn't hear the clarification. And so you actually misunderstand them. And because you misunderstand them, you misjudge them. So learn, as the, as the Proverbs say, to delight, not in revealing your own mind, but in gaining understanding of the other person's mind. Really understanding the perspective, the reasoning, the position, the motives, and the point of view of the person you're talking to. Hear them out. Hear them out fully. Then decide how to respond. You'll, you can take a few seconds after they're done to process it and then to reply. So listen fully. Third, listen fairly. Proverbs 18, 17. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Often our communication isn't just a two-way conversation, it's a three-way or there's a group of people. Or we're talking to one other person, but the conversation is about someone else or includes someone else. So to be a good listener, you have to listen to all the parties involved, not just one. So you need to listen fairly and not prejudge anyone or anything. This is especially important for pastors. All the time, people come to me and they're upset about something. You know, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. They didn't like this, they didn't like that. And as they're talking to me, it's very clear what the goal of the conversation is. They want me to think negatively about this person. The problem is, I'm only hearing one side of what happened. If I allow myself to jump to a conclusion I will think negatively about a lot of people. And generally speaking, you know, um, you know, if someone, you know, if someone talks negatively about someone to you, they're also talking negatively about you to someone else. And so, you know, I've had to, you know, try to learn to discipline my mind. Not, it's not that I distrust people. It's not that I don't believe them. It's that, it's that I cannot arrive at a legitimate conclusion until I've heard both sides. One person seems right. They do seem right. I mean, they're talking, I'm like, man, I can't believe this guy would do that. And then you go and talk to the guy, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, now I get it. Listen fairly. Be fair in the way you listen. So be quick to listen. Next major principle is be slow to speak. Now, the obvious application of this instruction is what we were just talking about, waiting until the other person is finished before you speak. In other words, don't be so quick to interject that the person feels interrupted. I want you to listen to what Proverbs 29, uh, 20 says about this. Proverbs 29, 20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Don't be hasty in your words. Don't just pop off with the first thing that comes to your mind. Be slow to speak. Well, how can we grow in this second key principle of biblical communication? I think we need to learn to speak less, speak logically, and speak lovingly. First of all, speak less. Proverbs chapter 10, uh, verse 19 says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. See, you know, you, 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 there's a disagreement. And boy, you just start. And, and it's, just, it, it's just this deluge of words. Well, somewhere in there, you probably said something super hurtful, super offensive. I've had couples sit in my office 
the husband's just baffled why his wife is so hurt. And so I'll say, well, I'll ask her, I'll say, could you tell me word for word exactly what he said? And when she does, and when it is articulated out loud in front of me, you know, sometimes I see husbands, I mean, it's like they're trying to burrow a hole into the couch, you know, you know, to, to hide when they realize what it is that they said. It was just in the midst of the deluge, this thing slipped out that was so hurtful. So we need to speak less. Don't be a motor mouth. Don't dominate conversations. Don't make people feel like they can't get a word in edgewise. Speak less. Restrain your lips and you will be viewed as wise by your conversation partner. Next, speak logically. Proverbs 15, uh, verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Speak logically. You need to ponder how to answer. You need to use your rational mind and think objectively about the situation and think before you speak. Pondering how to answer will help you avoid making illogical, inaccurate, hyperbolic statements which are simply factually untrue. And people make factually untrue statements all the time in arguments. In fact, most of the time that you use the word always or never, you are saying something that is factually untrue. You're exaggerating. You always do this. Really, always? I mean, there's not, like, hasn't been a single day where they didn't do that. You never do that. Now, I'm not super, I don't have a super consistent track record of picking up my socks. I'll just admit that. Okay? But if Katie says, sweetheart, you never pick up your socks, guess what I'm going to say? Well, I did yesterday. And I picked up one of the two today. The point is, is we need to be more accurate. You often don't pick up your socks or whatever. When we exaggerate, we bear false... By the way, my wife is so gracious. She is an expert at communication. If I was like her, the world would be easier for me. (laughs) And for her, actually. When we exaggerate, though, this is, the, this is the point. We bear false witness. We are breaking the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. If it's not true that they never do something or that they always do something, don't say that. Speak accurately, objectively, logically. Next, speak lovingly. Proverbs 16, verses 23 through 24. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth. See, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. There's times where you need to discuss a hard topic. You know it's going to be a hard topic. You know what you need to say is going to be hard to swallow. Well, if you know something's going to be hard to swallow, give them some water to gulp it down with. Give them some sugar. Add some sugar into that water. You can actually increase persuasiveness by adding pleasant words. To speak persuasively, you must also speak lovingly. So speak lovingly, and you will actually speak more powerfully. Love is powerful. So add persuasiveness to your speech. Have a wise heart which instructs your lips how to add persuasiveness through pleasant words. Next major principle is to be slow to anger. 
This is a, James is addressing a sin that often turns a disagreement into an argument and turns arguments into broken relationships and turns broken relationships into broken hearts. And he says that man's anger does not produce a righteous life. It's not from God. He contrasts, he contrasts the anger of man with the righteousness of God. Those two grammatical constructions are parallel. The anger of man contrasted with the righteousness of God. Now, he adds verse 20 saying that man's anger and emphasizing man's anger uh, doesn't achieve the righteousness of God because there is such a thing as divine anger and of righteous anger. Jesus displayed divine righteous anger when he drove the blasphemers and extortioners from his father's house, when he rebuked the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. Righteous anger, though, originates with God, not man. It's from the Holy Spirit, not the human soul. For anger to be a righteous anger, it has to come from the Holy Spirit, and the one who he is moving in righteous anger has to manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So if the fruit of the Spirit, if you can genuinely say that you have manifested the fruit of the Spirit in righteous and, and are manifesting righteous anger, then that's legitimate, but... What James is saying is most of the time, our anger is just simple, human, sinful, rotten anger. So he's clarifying here. He's talking here about man's anger, not righteous anger. But what he's telling us here with being slow to anger is he's saying that we need to have the strength of character it takes to control our emotions. Even when we're in difficult conversations where we disagree. Proverbs 16 verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. You know who the real tough guy is? The guy who's tough enough to control his own spirit. Men, this is for us. Throwing anger temper tantrums doesn't make you tough, it makes you a toddler. Throwing a temper tantrum doesn't make you tough, it makes you a toddler. It shows you're too weak to control your own emotions. Toddlers throw tantrums. Grown men should be able to control their own emotions. You need to learn how to rule your spirit. Well, how do we do that practically? Well, we need to stay calm, stay candid, and stay charitable when we're in a disagreement. First of all, stay calm. Proverbs 17, 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. You need to have a cool spirit. I looked this up because I was like, well, maybe are they just kind of translating the idea? No, no, no. The actual word means actually physically cold. You need to have a cool, a, a, a not hot but a cool spirit. You need to lower the temperature. You know, some people are like a pot of water that's constantly one degree below the boiling point. So the slightest bit of extra heat coming at them gets them boiling over. And that means that the person who gets burned when their anger boils over isn't even the one who added most of the heat. You know, they were at work and a demeaning boss or a rude client added 99 degrees of heat. Now, 
my mind's already in Europe, so you're going to have to forgive me. I'm using Celsius, right? Water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. It's very logical. And when I was writing this, I couldn't remember. I'm like, what's the boiling point of water in Fahrenheit, you know? But a demeaning boss or a rude client adds 99 degrees of heat. Then you go home and your wife or your child adds one more degree. Boom, you boil over. And who gets burned? The, the one degree person, not the 99. Sinful anger usually burns the most innocent, not the most guilty. So to avoid that, you not only have to stop responding sinfully to that last degree, you have to stop responding sinfully to the first 99 degrees. You have to lower the overall temperature in the pot. You need to have a cool spirit, a spirit which can absorb heat without boiling over, a spirit which can stay calm. Do you know why second marriages fail at a much higher rate than first marriages? And then third marriages fail at an even higher rate than second marriages? Often it's because the person is still bitter towards their former spouse. They're still at 99 degrees. And so now their new spouse says or does something, it's one degree, but boom, they're boiling over. And the new spouse is paying the price of the bitterness that's still held towards the former one. So you need to forgive. Forgive for even for the sake, not only for the Lord, not only for the former spouse, but for the one you love. You need to have a cool spirit. You gotta lower the temperature. Bitterness keeps you right below boiling. You need a cool spirit. So stay calm. Secondly, stay candid. Proverbs 15, four, uh, Proverbs 15 verses one through four. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. You got to stay candid. Notice that it is a gentle answer which turns away wrath, not a non-answer, not the silent treatment. It is a soothing tongue, which is a tree of life, not a silent tongue, not a seething tongue, not a sulking in a back bedroom tongue. Some people don't boil over when they're angry. They don't blow up. They just seethe. They don't yell. They don't argue. But that doesn't mean they're not angry. The silent treatment is their weapon of choice. They try to win arguments and punish those who they're offended at by unilaterally ending the conversation. But that's not what we're instructed to do. You are to give a gentle answer. So you're disobeying this if you don't give any answer at all. As the Ephesians says, you need to speak the truth, but speak it in love. You need to have a soothing tongue, not a silent tongue. You see, this person, the seether, they may not burn you with a harsh word, but they will freeze you with icy silence. But in the end, it matters little whether a relationship is destroyed by fire or by ice the result is the same so you need to speak the truth in love you need to stay candid even when you're upset third and lastly you need to stay charitable first corinthians 13 verse 7 says that love believes all things love believes love trusts the idea here is that love always extends the most charitable possible interpretation of a person's word or actions. This doesn't mean turning a blind eye to evil. It doesn't mean you know, dis, you know, pretending. But it does mean that you interpret another person's motives, words, and actions in the best possible light. You are charitable towards them. 
when my siblings and I would argue growing up, my dad would often say, boys, the problem is you're looking for the worst part of each other's position, not the best. But 1 Corinthians 13 says we should look for the best point the other person is making. He would say, boys, you need to learn to say to each other, that was a good point, but here's the other, a place where I do disagree. That was good advice. Love demands that we assign the most charitable interpretation of people's words and actions possible. Again, it doesn't mean we make excuses for them or turn a blind eye to sin, but it does mean that we believe the best about the other person. We adopt a gracious, not a critical attitude toward them. So learn to engage in conversations with an attitude of grace towards the other person, not an attitude of judgment or being critical. Stay charitable as you listen to others. So stay calm and Stay charitable. Well, James has given us three foundational principles. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We're going to come now to the Lord's table. And the elements which remind us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are going to enter our lips. As the men come to serve, I want you to spend some time reflecting on what's come out of those same lips in the last month. You may need to make some things right with the Lord and with someone. In the first service, I had to make something right with the Lord and I had to then walk down here and make something right with my, with, with my sons. You may need to do the same. And please come and serve. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to examine ourselves now and to prepare uh, to receive the communion elements through lips that need to be consecrated and need to be changed. So help us to examine our hearts and our mouths to repent of that which, in ways in which we've sinned. Lord, help us to change. So, Lord, we come to your table examining ourselves to prepare. In Jesus' name, amen.